All right, welcome, welcome everybody to another episode of the Final Final Podcast here. Carter Thompson, your host as always. Thanks for joining me on another episode here. 54 we are up to. We have got a lot to cover in this episode. Some unfortunate news to start off with in the NFL. We have the Deshaun Watson punishment and ruling that came down, I believe, two days ago now on Monday. We'll get into that and how long his suspension is initially. Possibly could change. We'll get into all that here in just a second. The Miami Dolphins also had a punishment come down for some tampering charges that they had. That's not even the the worst part about that ruling, which we'll get into that one as well. We also have just some legends in the industry of basketball and broadcasting. Used to be living legends, unfortunately passed on, which we'll get to at the end of this episode. So a few unfortunate things, but then some exciting things in the middle of this episode. We've got a huge MLB trade deadline that went and passed just yesterday, the 2nd of August, which we'll get into those big trades. We had an absolute blockbuster historic deal, which we'll get into as well, all in this episode. So we better go ahead and get started. We'll start with some of the disappointing news in the NFL, and that is the Deshaun Watson ruling. His suspension came down on Monday. What the NFL and the NFL Players Association agreed to in the new CBA back in 2020 was for suspensions or player misconduct like this is that the NFL and the NFLPA would have a disciplinary officer, a hearing officer, an independent judge that would gather all the information, would hear all this, and then they would make the ruling and the suggestion. In this case, I believe it's Judge Sue Robinson, who is the hearing officer. She made the determination of only a six-game suspension for Deshaun Watson. The NFL, they wanted an indefinite suspension for Deshaun Watson, where then he'd have to ask for reinstatement. Maybe it's a one-year suspension. Maybe it's a little bit longer. But right now, it's only a six-game suspension. I mean, let's not forget, this is the NFL that suspended Calvin Ridley one year for sports betting on his own team. They suspended Tom Brady four games for slightly deflating footballs in the NFL postseason. I mean, we have six games for Deshaun Watson who had, I believe it was up to 26 or 28 charges of sexual assault on all these masseuses, and he has a six-game suspension. I mean, I mean, let's not forget the the MLB suspended one of its star pitchers, one of the best pitchers in the MLB for two years, two seasons, 324 games for his domestic violence, sexual assault allegations against him from one woman. Watson had 26. That's not to say that the MLB went overboard for two seasons because it it doesn't matter the amount of women. But Watson had 26 counts of this against him and he only gets six games. Kind of... uh, It just kind of feels wrong and disgusting, disappointing, you know, thinking about it. So what's next for this? The NFL, they can appeal this. This was part of the new CBA. And then Roger Goodell, either he or someone that he appoints, will hear the appeal. Usually it's it's a pretty quick process. They don't take in any new information. They take the stuff that the information that's already been given, and they make the decision themselves. But it's either Roger Goodell or someone that he pays that's part of the NFL. But the NFL and the NFLPA in the new 2020 CBA wanted to not make Roger Goodell 
usually Roger Goodell is the judge, jury, executioner in these cases where it was just him. He gathers all the facts, both sides given this, then Roger Goodell makes the decision from there. This new CBA, they wanted this hearing officer, this disciplinary officer, this independent judge to be the new person. So it's not just Roger Goodell. But in the CBA, there's also a clause that says the NFL or the NFL Players Association, if they don't like the ruling either, either one can appeal the decision from this hearing officer. And then the decision goes to Roger Goodell or if he assigned someone in his office to make that decision. So essentially, Roger Goodell can still make this decision. He can still be judge, jury, executioner. Now he's just the appellate judge, I believe is the word. He makes the decision to appeal. Now he can be the be the judge and, and he can shorten, he can lengthen, or he can leave the suspension the same when they appeal. The NFL has to appeal within three days after that decision came up. Today was day two and the NFL has appealed. So Roger Goodell or someone that he appoints will make a final ruling on this. And once that decision is made, whether it's Roger Goodell or someone he appoints, it looks like it's probably going to be Roger Goodell who makes the decision on this. This is the first time that they've had this hearing officer, disciplinary officer, one of these kind of cases where it's not Roger Goodell making the decision. You know, we've seen where he, I mean, goodness, he suspended players for smoking weed for 16 plus games. I mean, Josh Gordon former Browns wide receiver had been suspend had been indefinitely suspended for smoking weed and now we've got Deshaun Watson only having 6 games the NFL has appealed this is an opportunity i think for them here to take a step in the right direction in terms of their domestic violence policy and set a precedent for victims of harassment the reason that this judge Sue Robinson had only given Deshaun Watson 6 games is she called this this pattern of him with these masseuses, these 26 masseuses, predatory and disgusting and something that he didn't feel any remorse for doing and that if he that this is something that he would continue to do. The only reason that she said that it she could only, I guess she put quotations around only give six games is because it was nonviolent, where you've had other cases, Ray Rice, Ben Roethlisberger, Cream Hunt, cases like that where those have been violent and longer suspensions. This one was nonviolent, and I guess the amount of women in this case didn't matter, which, of course, is horrible, and it obviously should have an effect on the, on the ruling of the case. But since it was nonviolent, she still said it was predatory, though. She agreed with that fact, the fact that it was also something he doesn't appear to feel remorse for is, is something that is very disturbing. The NFL has appealed. So that means this now will go to a final ruling of which Roger Goodell will now make the final ruling, whether this suspension goes longer. I believe he can make it an indefinite suspension as well. I doubt he'll make it go shorter, certainly. But I think now the NFL has an opportunity here to take a step in the right direction for their domestic violence policy and set a precedent for these victims of harassment so that these guys in the NFL that, that do this don't just think, ah, oh, well, it's just a couple of games I'm out. Now I'm back in the NFL. I'm still making money kind of deal like that. I mean, when do it's just it's not turning them away from stuff like this if we continue to see high-profile 
players and just because he's a quarterback now gets celebrated back on the field in just less than half a season even. And I mean, remember, Deshaun Watson's contract is set up so he loses only a maximum of $1 million this year on a fully guaranteed $46 million contract, $260 million fully guaranteed over the course of the five-year contract, $46 million per year. I mean, if the suspension goes into next season, that's when he starts to lose serious money. But the Browns gave him everything they wanted, everything he wanted, I'm sorry, in terms of the contract. So he got the $45 million signing bonus this year. This way that the NFL, when they suspend him, this six games, if Roger Goodell makes it more, none of that money can be taken away as a part of the suspension. All feels very uncomfortable, very wrong, very disappointing in terms of the initial outcome of all of these findings and all of these rulings from the hearing officer. They felt like they, since it was nonviolent in their terms, is that it was six games in this case. Perfect setup for Roger Goodell now to take this in his hands, take this in the NFL's hands, and make this suspension at least a year. He could make it indefinite after that. Once Roger Goodell then makes his final ruling, Deshaun Watson can sue the NFL. This can end up in court. We saw that with Tom Brady. I believe we've seen that with a couple of other ones, Tom Brady, when it came to the deflating footballs and stuff like that. Um, Deshaun Watson can sue. He, He can then start the season week one because he's basically challenging the ruling and then he won't have to serve his suspension until there's a final ruling in federal court. But he would probably end up losing and say he's got a one-year suspension and he plays the first four weeks of the season and then we finally get a ruling in federal court if he sues the NFL. Now his one-year suspension goes into 2023 where he's making that $46 million per year. His game checks are in the millions of dollars and then he'd lose more per week because he'd have to lose the first four games of next season as well. So it looks like this will be a fast process because when Roger Goodell and the NFL appeal, no new information is taken in. Roger Goodell, either him or someone that he appoints, will make this decision then, probably before the season starts, possibly. They'll take on all the information that the hearing officer, Judge Sue Robinson, has and then they'll make their final decision i'm hoping i'm hoping it's at least a one-year suspension if it's an indefinite suspension that is a big time ruling because then deshaun watson has to file to be reinstated into the nfl and we'll see how all of that goes but man this six games feels very disappointing on the initial suspension for deshaun watson so we had that news come down on monday i mean in comparison to the other suspensions that we've seen as well the mlb really laid the hammer down on one of their star starting pitchers in Trevor Bauer with a two-year suspension, two-year suspension for something along the same lines of their domestic violence policy. And now you have Deshaun Watson in terms of the NFL's domestic violence policy at only six games. We'll see. This is all going to start rolling pretty quick, and we'll see what Roger Goodell, this is going to make some big, I mean, especially with the new CBA on how it was set up that the NFL Players Association was trying to avoid something like this where Roger Goodell has all of this control. Now it looks like it's going to go back into his hands or someone that he personally appoints, who is also paid by from like the Roger Goodell from the NFL commissioner's office. We'll see how this all goes. <laughs> Another 
more disappointing news on the front of punishments being handed down. This one on the side of the Brian Flores suit, as he believed, if you remember, former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, was wrongly fired from the Dolphins because of his skin color and because he was asked to purposely lose games in the NFL by the Miami Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross. If you remember this, he was asked to lose games. He didn't. He actually went to the playoffs one time at 10-6. and six. The next year after that was 9-8. and eight. He's actually got a 24-25 and 25 record as the Miami Dolphins head coach. Two winning seasons back-to-back and was fired after a winning season as well. Believes he was fired because he was asked to lose games. He said he wouldn't and believes no other coach would be asked to do something like that. And then even after winning, no other coach would be asked to do something like that. And then even after having a winning team, still being fired for something like that. The report that came out found that owner Stephen Ross was, in quote here, just joking about asking Flores to, to lose games. Yet he was still fired from his job as the head coach where he had two winning seasons. Back to back. 2020 and 2021, he was 10 and 6 and then 9 and 7. How does that work? If he's just joking, don't lose games. But then he goes on and wins games, make, takes you to the playoffs one year, still gets fired from his job. That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Instead, what they were punished for were tampering violations when they were trying to hire Sean Payton or trying to talk to Sean Payton as being the next head coach of the Dolphins or be the head coach of the Dolphins. Back before, I believe, they hired Brian Flores when the Saints hadn't given them permission, and they also tried to talk to Tom Brady when he was a member. If you remember, we were talking about this, Tom Brady trying to force himself to Miami this year when he retired with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for 40 days, and then he came back unretired. Really, I can't. That's just a little footnote that's everybody's forgotten about this offseason is that Tom Brady retired for a quick 40 days. This is all the way back in 2019 when he was still a member of the Patriots. They tried to talk to him to be a part owner of the Miami Dolphins as well, as long as going along with being the starting quarterback of the team. They didn't, they couldn't do that at the time. He was still a member of the New England Patriots. It was something that they weren't supposed to be able to do. I mean, they were punished for tampering here. For this, it was fined. Stephen Ross was fined $1.5 million, which is absolutely nothing to a billionaire owner, was suspended for half the season, and the Miami Dolphins lose their 2023 first-round pick, 2024 third-round pick. That, I think, is a very serious punishment. Those two losses of those first-round pick and a third-round pick come from the tampering of Sean Payton and Tom Brady which I think is appropriate, disappointing in that nothing has yet to come of this Brian Flores suit in terms of what owner Stephen Ross has done. I mean, the way that they, how can you just say that this guy was just joking? He still threatened Brian Flores with his job. He lost his job for not doing what the owner asked, which is compromising the integrity of the NFL. I mean, it's just disappointing in what these owners of NFL franchises can get away with almost anything at this point with minimal consequences. We see Daniel Snyder still in Washington. You've got Stephen Ross here in Miami. I mean, come on. He was just joking? Obviously not if Brian Flores still lost his job for not losing games. Where does does he just tell the investigator, oh, I was just joking about that? You know, 
I was just messing around. You know, hey, lose some games. Maybe we'll get a better draft position. I really don't care about making the playoffs that much. I'd really like this good draft pick. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Nothing has come from that Brian Flores suit yet that has looked positive in terms of how he was fired from the Miami Dolphins. This certainly doesn't help either when apparently an owner can just say, no, I was just joking about purposely losing games. We know teams maybe in the middle of the season, maybe towards the end of the season when you haven't had your best season, maybe you've got two wins and it's week 16 or something like that and you're obviously not putting your best foot forward. That's understandable. But when you're telling a head coach to lose games at the beginning of the season, you wouldn't ask any other head coach to do this. Very disappointing of this outcome so far. We'll see if anything else comes from it. So two rather disappointing outcomes from from the Brian Flores suit, the Deshaun Watson case. Not a great look to start for the NFL. I mean, Browns are happy that this happened to the the Dolphins right after the Deshaun Watson case came down, takes them out of the spotlight. But today, Roger Goodell appealed that suspension length, likely to hopefully make it longer, which will put them right back in the spotlight, as it should be, because this is something that shouldn't just go away after six games, and then we celebrate Deshaun Watson scoring a bunch of touchdowns. All right, other NFL news, positive NFL news now. Let's get away from all this negativity for a little bit. Wide receivers continuing to get paid in this offseason. We've got two more big deals for these wide receivers. DK Metcalf of the Seattle Seahawks and Debo Samuel join the likes of A.J. Brown, Terry McLaurin in their draft class to cash in this offseason on contract extensions. I mean, that's to go along with the many likes of all the other wide receivers to get absolutely paid. Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill, Cooper Cup even got an extension. Stephon Diggs got one. Mike Williams, Chris Godwin, DJ Moore. I mean, the list goes on. Of all these wide receivers getting paid over $20 million a season this year, let's stick with the two latest ones. Debo Samuel, his contract extension, three years for $73.5 million, 58.1 of that fully guaranteed. He has clauses in his contract as well for pay increases depending on his rushing ability as well. So it looks like 49ers still might be able to use him as more than just a wide receiver, maybe some packages out of the backfield, jet sweeps and stuff like that as well, which we saw last year was incredibly valuable for this team. I believe he had eight rushing touchdowns last year. So, I mean, he'll get paid more on the amount of rushing yards he has per season, the amount of attempts probably, and the touchdowns that he has per season as well. I believe it's up to $2 million almost, almost $2 million more onto his contract if he meets some of these thresholds for rushing yards and touchdowns and stuff like that. I don't think it's per year. I think it's over the entirety of the three-year contract. So that's a little bit interesting. You still might see Debo Samuel in that rushing role, but he'll be getting paid for it. And it still might be a little bit less to conserve his body as well. DK Metcalf's contract now, three-year extension, $73 million. But DK Metcalf gets a $30 million signing bonus, which is the most ever for a wide receiver. So that is really great news for DK Metcalf. The one thing I really like about these contracts for both of these wide receivers is these guys are young. These guys are still 25, maybe 26 years old. They're going to be able to cash in again with another big contract by the time they turn 28 years old. So DK turns 28. This contract with the Seattle Seahawks is up. 
Maybe he gets traded. This is It, it kind of reminds me of what happened with Devontae Adams here. You know, maybe the Seahawks can't afford to pay him whatever. The new, maybe it'll be up to like $32 million for a, for a wide receiver at that point. He'll be able to get a new big deal at the age of 28 years old, still in your prime. Probably get like a four. He'll be looking for a five-year deal. Because usually once wide receivers hit past that 30, 31 years old, you start to see a noticeable decline. We've seen it, unfortunately, in Julio Jones. That's one of the prime examples that we've been using recently. But still, get your money while you can in the NFL. These receivers now at 28 hopefully give themselves a chance to get another one of those contracts. Really like both of their extensions. You don't, when you're younger, get that three-year deal, still get yourself to that 28. Now you can get that big five-year deal at that point. You saw that with Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill this past offseason. I like these contracts for both of them. DK Metcalf, I mean the Seahawks, I don't know, you're in kind of like full rebuild mode. You paid Tyler Lockett, was that a year ago or something like that? I mean, you've got two great wide receivers. Your problem is you don't have a quarterback to throw to these two wide receivers that you're paying a ton of money to. Now, if you can land a quarterback in next year's draft, maybe it all works out. You also don't have an offensive line as of this current moment, a good one. I know they drafted an offensive lineman in the first round and the second round maybe of this past year's draft, so they're trying to rebuild that now. I think the Seahawks are trying to take – the similar approach that I've been thinking that the Detroit Lions have been trying to take. Build the rest of this team now. Make the quarterback your last piece of the puzzle. Once you get that, once you find that franchise quarterback, make sure you have everything else in place so that that quarterback, that rookie quarterback, can succeed right away. I mean, we see teams that struggle with this all the time. The New York Jets, Jacksonville Jaguars. A lot of these teams... They draft these super young quarterback, Carolina Panthers. They draft these young, good quarterbacks, but they have nothing on the team to surround him with, and then they struggle the first two, three years, and then everybody gives up on these young quarterbacks. Sometimes you need to have a little help on the team. Some of these teams don't have that. They don't go for it with these other players who are signing good free agents. They might spend money in free agency. doesn't mean they're spending it on the good players getting good players into their organization. I like what the Seahawks are doing. I think in terms of building the rest of their roster and then getting the quarterback, now you just got to nail the quarterback pick. Debo Samuel might be the most important piece on the San Francisco 49ers team, especially in terms of offense, by far their most important piece in terms of his versatility and what he can bring. So I think that San Francisco keeping him there, especially with Trey Lance taking the helm, as the starting quarterback this year, makes a ton of sense for them. I know he wanted out at the beginning of this offseason. You remember the trade requests that we had with Debo Samuel early on, even before the Devontae Adams trade, I believe. Debo Samuel was a guy that was on the block. Good for the 49ers to be able to hang on to top three most important pieces on this entire team, if not the most important piece on the San Francisco 49ers. All right. That's all I have on the NFL right now. Let's move on to just an absolutely historic baseball trade that went down, I believe it was on Monday. The trade deadline was on Tuesday, August 2nd. Let's talk about the MLB trade deadline deals that just happened. We talked about it two episodes ago. So here it goes. Juan Soto, megastar, 
his comparisons that we talk about in history when we talk about Juan Soto, who does he compare to as, as a former player? All of the comparisons that you bring up for Juan Soto are Hall of Famers. Juan Soto, outfielder formerly of the Washington Nationals, has been traded to the San Diego Padres for an unprecedented haul of players and prospects. Let's start with the details of this one. We talked about this two episodes ago and how big of a deal this was because not only is a player like this never available, especially at the age of 23 when he technically hasn't even hit his physical prime yet. I mean, wow. Here's the details of this trade. San Diego Padres, they get outfielder Juan Soto. They also get one of the better first basemen in baseball who's having a really good year in Josh Bell to go with their team. The Washington Nationals then receive these prospects. You might not know their names. Nobody usually knows the names of the prospects unless you're a fan of said organization. So San Diego Padres fans will know these names. I'll try to give you some comparison on how good some of these players are. They get left-handed pitcher Mackenzie Gore, shortstop C.J. Abrahams, outfielder Robert Hassel III, outfielder James Wood, right-handed pitcher Jarlin Susana, and a designated hitter in Luke Voigt. Let's quickly discuss the players in return for Soto and Josh Bell before we talk about Soto on the Padres. I mean, for the Nationals, these kind of players, this is kind of the best you could ask for for the Nationals when trading away a generational-type player and the return that you get. Let's start here. Two top 100 overall prospects. So you list all the prospects. I mean, you if you don't know all of the minor league systems that there are in baseball, there's like six of them. And then you have to fill out a roster on each of those six for every major league baseball team. So 30 MLB teams each have like seven total teams that they have to fill in the minor leagues as well. They rank them all, the top 100, two of the top overall prospects, two top 100 overall prospects in the outfielders go to the Nationals. A former top overall pitching prospect in Mackenzie Gore, he's made it to the big leagues a couple times, sometimes being sent back down to the minor leagues as well. He used to be a top five pitching prospect, has a lot of potential as well. Sixth overall pick in 2019, C.J. Abrahams, that shortstop, who is a top 10 prospect in terms of all minor league players as well. You got Jarlin Susanna, that right-handed pitcher that I mentioned. He's just 18 years old, only 18 years old in the minor league system. He's six foot six and throws at 100 miles per hour already at just 18 years old. You got James Wood, the outfielder that I mentioned. He has Aaron Judge like size and power, not comparing him to Aaron Judge, and he's not going to turn into Aaron Judge and hit 45 home runs by the beginning of August. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying the potential is there to have just an absolute power hitter in James Woods because of his size and the power that he's shown in the minor leagues. I mean, these are five high. And then you've got an an MLB-ready player in Luke Voigt right now who's having a really nice season as the designated hitter spot. So they get an MLB-ready player right now. The Nationals do as well. I mean, these are five high, high high-ceiling potential prospects, and which is baseball is all about. You coach them up, then you bring them to the major leagues, and you hope what they can do from there. And they might not hit on all of them and turn them all into all-star level players. It's very unlikely that that's going to happen with all five of these guys that the Washington Nationals received. But say they do it with three. That's exceptional for a team to give up for three seasons 
of a player of Juan Soto's caliber, you still get possibly three all-star level players. That's what all five of these guys that the Nationals got have projections of being future all-stars. They have the talent. They have the, the right stuff, I guess you could put in quotes, whether it's the pitching mechanics, whether it's the size in James Woods, whether it's the pitching speed in Susana, who can throw at 100 miles per hour already at the age of 18 years old, whether it's the hitting power, whether it's the speed. These guys, all five of them, project as future all-stars. It's unlikely that all five will, but say you get three all-stars in returns for a generational-type player in Juan Soto, that's probably the best you can ask for for a guy that's not going to re-sign on your team. You get all these players back instead of losing him for nothing. It makes a lot of sense for the Nationals to do this deal. you got new ownership coming in probably in the next year or two. They're not going to be saddled with a $500 million contract on one player. makes a lot of sense, and they get an unprecedented haul of players back in prospects that they can build this franchise back up with. Now let's take a look at it on the San Diego Padres side. Are they contenders, favorites to win it all this year or the three years that Soto is guaranteed to be on the team? I mean, I tell you what, you look at this lineup, at one point the two, three, and four hitters are going to be Juan Soto, who's a top three player, Fernando Tatis Jr., who's a shortstop on the San Diego Padres right now. He's a top 10 player. And then you got Manny Machado at third base, who's probably going to be hitting fourth. And he's currently probably the favorite to win the MVP in the National League. I mean, holy smokes. And then they've got a nice starting rotation as well. Joe Musgrove, you Darvish. I think I'm missing some Blake Snell as well in this. This team is absolutely loaded. If everybody can stay healthy right now, Fernando Tatis Jr. is working himself back from injury. If everybody can stay healthy, the San Diego Padres are going to be going toe-to-toe with the team that has probably the highest payroll in baseball, which is the Los Angeles Dodgers, in their own division. This is going to be very exciting to watch for the next three years where you've got the Dodgers who have Mookie Betts, Trey Turner, Freddie Freeman, Clayton Kershaw. I can't, I'm for some reason blanking on their number one pitcher right now. Walker Bueller, that's his name. I mean, you've got these matchups are going to be so exciting to watch when it comes playoff time as well. You're guaranteed three years with Juan Soto. Now the next question is, is this too much to give up for a player? What I just mentioned before that the Nationals got, is it too much that they gave up to give up for Juan Soto when you only have him for three years probably? Because it looks unlikely that they're going to be able to afford to pay Juan Soto come 2025. Let's talk about that. He's going to command probably $500-plus on his next contract, whether that's over 10 years, whether that's over 12 years. My guess is by the time 2025 comes around, he's what? He's 25, 26 years old. Usually you get a 10- to 12-year contract at that point. You're paying this guy up until he's 35, 36 you're going to be paying him around $45 million per year. I mean, San Diego is already paying Fernando Tatis Jr. Remember, these are all guaranteed contracts. They're already paying their shortstop $306 million over the 10 years on that contract. Then they got to pay the final $120 million on Manny Machado's contract over four years. Then they got to pay the final $60 million 
on the Joe Musgrove contract, who they just extended this past offseason. And they're currently playing guys like Hugh Darvish, Blake Snell. So it's unlikely that Juan Soto is going to be staying after the three years that he's on this team because you'll get San Diego is not one of the big market teams when it comes to TV revenue. Um, What's the other thing that I'm trying to say? TV, I mean, exposure, I guess. The TV deals, they're not getting the same amount as the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Red Sox, teams like that. It's very unlikely that Juan Soto stays when he goes to be a free agent when it comes to 2025 season. He'll be able to get these teams bidding for him. 10 years, $450 million. 12 years, $500 million. You know, something like that is what he'll be able to command by the time 2025 comes around with the current pace and the absolute generational player that he has already been since he's been in the league since 19 years old. What this does show, though, with San Diego making a deal like this, you get a potential Hall of Fame player on your team from the years of 23, when he's 23 years old up until he's probably 25, almost 26. What this does show is that small market teams can afford to compete with the big market teams like Los Angeles and the New York Yankees, can afford to make big moves, if their owner cares about winning the championship. I bring this up for this reason. Because the Padres were not done with just the Juan Soto deal. They made a trade before this one that brought in, which was another huge deal, trading for the best closer in the game in left-handed pitcher Josh Hader. Before we get to the Josh Hader trade with the Milwaukee Brewers, let's finish up with the Juan Soto deal. Because I don't believe Juan Soto is on the team after the 2025 season. He even was asked the question today. He's in the San Diego Padres lineup today. He was asked the question, do you see envision yourself being with the Padres long-term? And he said, he kind of skated over the question. His agent probably taught him up well, saying, hey, I'm excited to be here right now, and I'm excited to win right now. Basically leaving the door open that he's probably going to leave. They're not going to be able to pay $500 million for Juan Soto, $300 million, for Fernando Tatis Jr., and then $120 million for Manny Machado, and $60 million for their best starting pitcher. That's $1 billion, basically, right there on four players on your team, guaranteed to these players. They're not going to be able to do that long-term, but teams can. these small market teams can go for it in the short term. What I mean by that is the TV revenue, remember, that these teams bring in in the San Diego market and the TV market these teams can go for it. And I bring that up now. I think this is okay for the San Diego Padres. If they win the MLB championship in those three years, it'll totally be worth it. It'll absolutely be worth it to get, to have traded away all those players for Juan Soto just to win one and be in contention for two or three championships to get a guy like this. Their offense was lacking for a little bit there. You bring in one of the best hitters in baseball, along with another great hitter at first base, I think it will be worth it as long as they win. If they don't, well, hey, they took a chance. A lot of these teams aren't taking chances. That's what you ask for as a fan base, is at least they took a chance and tried to go and win, not just letting the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Astros, I mean the Red Sox sometimes just win it every other year. They went for it, which is very exciting. I bring that up 
because the Padres made the deal for the best closer in the game in left-handed pitcher Josh Hader from the Milwaukee Brewers as a Brewers fan. Very sad to see him go. Here's the quick details. Padres get Josh Hader. Brewers receive left-handed pitcher Taylor Rogers. Right-handed pitcher, he's their closer, their former closer. It's funny, Josh Hader had the most saves in baseball at 29. Taylor Rogers had the second most saves at 28 for the Padres. They flop teams. Rogers comes to the Brewers. Hader goes to the Padres. Rogers has been struggling the past month. Hader still probably one of the top two, three best closers in baseball. So the Brewers get Taylor Rogers, right-handed pitcher Dinsel Lamette. He's a starting pitcher. Then they get two prospects in Robert Gasser, an outfielder. I'm not going to be able to say his first name. Asturi Ruiz. I'm sure I said that wrong, and I apologize for that. But those are just two mid-level prospects that the Brewers got for the best closer in baseball. The Brewers had the best bullpen probably in baseball with Devin Williams, Brad Boxberger, and Josh Hader, and they just give that up, and the Brewers are in first place of their division. And, I mean, Brewers GM David Stern has his hands tied a little bit with a team like this because the Brewers owner, Mark Antanasio, I believe is how you pronounce it, isn't willing to spend to make this team playoff viable, or I'm sorry, to make this team championship viable year after year. So what David Stern has to do is when you have a guy like Josh Hader, who their owner, Mark Antanasio, is probably not going to want to pay 12 to $15 million per year once his contract is up, he has to trade away a guy like this in the middle of a winning season for potential future prospects that they can afford on this team to make this team just playoff viable year after year but not any more than that to win the entire championship and this small market argument or small franchise not spending I just debunked that in the previous trade of the San Diego Padres going all in for it or what the Tampa Bay Rays have been able to do when they made the World Series you've seen these smaller market teams go for it if they're just willing to spend it's not like Mark Antanasio is struggling with market money This is a billionaire owner. It just depends whether these owners really care about winning with their franchise or they're just like, yeah, I own a a sports franchise. It can be very frustrating for fans. Brewers fans are rightly very frustrated right now with what they got back in return. I'm sure if they would have gotten a better return in terms of prospects that this is something that we can win with these future players, then maybe they wouldn't be as frustrated. But trading away the best closer in baseball to avoid paying him a big contract in a year or maybe two years can be very disappointing when it comes to a team that has been in the playoffs, hasn't been even competitive when it gets into the playoffs for a couple years. I can't believe when it was when they took the Dodgers, when they were in the NLCS against the Dodgers. Maybe that was that, like six, they took them to six games or something like that. I don't think it got to a game seven, but I could be wrong there. But it can get very frustrating for small, quote unquote, small market teams that aren't willing to go for it and challenge and try to compete when you have these players on your team where instead the Brewers, instead of trading Josh Hader, maybe they should have brought in a player to try and go for it and win it this year. You've got maybe the best pitcher, one of the top five pitchers in baseball in Corbin Burns. You've got great rotation. You're starting off at your starting rotation in terms of pitching with Brandon Woodruff. Freddie Peralta when he's healthy, Eric Lauer, you got Aaron Ashby as well. That's a great starting five. 
not a lot of teams, even these teams that are going to be making it into the playoffs, can say they have a starting five rotation of those kinds of pitchers. So the Brewers have that. They have probably the best bullpen, bullpen, excuse me, in baseball. Like I said, Brad Boxberger. You got Devin Williams, who's got maybe the nastiest pitch in all of baseball. And then you got the best closer in Josh Hader. And then if your offense is somewhat viable, which instead of trading away Josh Hader, maybe you bring in a player that helps out the offense, someone that gets on base more so that the Brewers can score more runs, support these really good pitchers that they have. But instead, you're selling and not competing for the championship. Now, I don't like almost no chance that the Brewers are going to be able to compete with a team like the Padres or the Los Angeles Dodgers because they weren't willing to spend maybe just even a little more. You brought a lot of these guys up through your system. They're on your team now. You sign reliable veterans in the offseason, maybe at the beginning of the season. You're a very competitive team. You're winning your division. It can be very frustrating for fans when something like this doesn't work out. But for the Padres, they are absolutely going for it. I mean, you bring in a top five, top three player in Juan Soto. Now you have the best closer in baseball as well. You've got a starting rotation of Joe Musgrove, um, you Darvish, Blake Snell. You've got the closer in Josh Hader. And now you've got the offense of Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis Jr., and Manny Machado to go along with Josh Bell, Trent Grisham in the outfield being your defensive ace. Love this move. Absolutely love this move for the San Diego Padres. What an absolute disaster for the Milwaukee Brewers. Also a fan favorite in Josh Hader as well. Very sad to see him go. Very frustrating as a Brewer fan myself personally. And I also get why these quote-unquote small market team, the Oakland A's, oh my goodness, I couldn't imagine being a fan of the Oakland A's. If you remember the movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt, sorry, I almost forgot his name there. With Brad Pitt, when he's trying to get some of these players on his team, he says, oh, let me talk to my owner. I have to see if I have the money to get a guy like this. That's what a David Stern has to work with. He, where a GM of the Los Angeles Dodgers, a GM of the New York Yankees, these guys get fired quickly if they don't spend and go get these big-name players. They're like, no, I need this guy. I need the biggest player, the best player in baseball on my team. Go get him, trade whatever you need, pay him the money. We need to win here in New York. We need to win here in Los Angeles. David Stearns and guys in Oakland, you get guys, I'm trying to look at what the bottom five small market, quote-unquote, small market teams are. I mean, these guys, have these GMs have to struggle to get some of these good, keep some of their good players as well. Josh Hader was a guy that, yeah, maybe had to be traded if he, if he was going to be too rich to afford for the Milwaukee Brewers, but it's something that you got to be able to do. You got to go for it sometimes, and it just seems like if the owner doesn't care about winning, it'll never get done. The Brewers will never get over that hump of even making it to the World Series. Can be very frustrating for these small market teams, Oakland A's, Milwaukee Brewers, teams like that that just aren't willing. If you remember that from Moneyball, that scene where he's trying to trade for some players, he's like, "Yes, I'll accept the deal. Let me call you back in like two minutes. I got to talk to my owner real quick." can be very frustrating for fans. Here's another example of that for you right now. All right, let's go quickly through some other big deals at the MLB trade deadline here. I mean, the Yankees, here's another example. The rich get a little bit richer. They added three players at the trade deadline, trading for two outfielders, Andrew Benintende. I believe he is from 
Is he from the Royals? I believe he comes from the Kansas City Royals. They grab center fielder Harrison Bader from the Sandy, or from the St. Louis Cardinals, trading away one of their pitchers in Jordan Montgomery. Then they also add starting pitcher Frankie Montas from the Oakland Athletics. Told you, Oakland Athletics, trading away some of their best players. I know they're not a viable playoff team this year, but they're not. I mean, they also had, I mean, they're, if you remember the when Kyler Murray signed his contract, the joke was Kyler Murray's going to be making an average of, I believe, $46.1 million per year. The Oakland Athletics opening day roster payroll was like $47 million. And this is what happens when you have a good player, and then you just have to trade him away to a team that can afford to pay him more. So, I mean, the rich get richer, the Yankees. Adding some defense. I mean, they are up to, I believe they have the best record in baseball right now. They're up to 70 wins. They add some defense in the outfield so Aaron Judge doesn't have to play center field and Giancarlo Stanton can still be the designated hitter. You can put Harrison Bader, who is a gold glove center fielder at center field, Andrew Benintende, an above, very much above average outfielder in, I believe that would be right field. can put him out in right field. And then adding Frankie Montas to the starting rotation of Garrett Cole, Nestor Cortez, Frankie Montas. Now you add in there along with Luis Severino when he gets back from injury. I mean, that's a very good rotation. And the reason they added three players is because there's another team. It's an arms race in the American League with the Houston Astros. And to think that they would sit silent at the deadline is silly because they also added a big bat fan favorite outfielder Trey Mancini. From the Baltimore Orioles, Baltimore Orioles. That's another quote-unquote small market team. It would be very frustrating to be a Baltimore Orioles fan right now as they are one of the hottest teams in baseball. And here they are. They just traded away their number one closer on the team. They traded away fan favorite and very reliable right now, outfielder first baseman Trey Mancini. So even a team that's winning, similar to what the Brewers did, is they're trading away some of their best players in Trey Mancini and their closer to the Minnesota Twins. Frustrating for Orioles, A's, Brewers fans right now at this trade deadline. For the Astros, this makes a ton of sense. Arms race, like I said, in the American League as the Yankees and Astros fight for the top spot in that conference. Mancini, it's even more of a luxury for this team. They don't even need him, really. May not even be an everyday starter if everyone on the Astros is healthy. But he that's an incredible insurance piece to have. I mean, they've got a couple of outfielders right now that aren't healthy, so he's starting right now. And I believe, actually, as we're recording this, he just hit a home run today, August 3rd, so the day after his first appearance with the Astros, and he hits a home run in Houston. So they're good for them there. They also upgraded at catcher, trading for Christian Vasquez of the Boston Red Sox, like I said, so they get an upgrade at that position to try and keep pace with the Yankees for that top spot when it comes playoff time to see who can get to the World Series. I mean, these look like... Your two best teams in the American League right now, you got teams like Tampa Bay, Chicago White Sox, Minnesota Twins still vying as well, Mariners trying to as well. They added a piece, but right now it looks like Yankees and Astros. Yankees are, I believe, 40-19 and 19 at home, their record, maybe 41, and then their record away from home is like 29-21, and 21. so they're much better at home. They want that home home field advantage in the playoffs you see these two powerhouses in the american league adding more to this arms race in the al mentioned the seattle mariners as a potential playoff team they get the top pitching prize 
of the trade deadline in starting pitcher Luis Castillo from the Cincinnati Reds. Had to give up a top 15 overall prospect, though, to get him. And they're going to go make the playoffs with this guy now. The question is, do they have enough firepower on offense to get there and be viable, compete with the Yankees and the Astros? Probably not if these two teams are fully healthy. But this is a, the Seattle Mariners are another, quote, small market team going for it here at the trade deadline, giving up good prospects to go get a very good starting pitcher in baseball right now to try and compete in the playoffs. So the Seattle Mariners get the top pitching prize in starting pitcher Luis Castillo. All right, those are the big deals from the trade deadline highlighted by the Juan Soto one. I mean, that was incredible. We talked about that two episodes ago about the possibility of that. This has been described as the largest trade in MLB history ever. I mean, it's it's up there. Probably the only one comparable is maybe the Babe Ruth trade with the Yankees and the Red Sox. I mean, maybe the Alex Rodriguez trade, but I don't think this amount, the reason it's so big is the amount of talent that's also going back to the Nationals. I mean, this. I mean, you've had big-time players be traded before. We just mentioned Babe Ruth, Alex Rodriguez. Those are legends that have been traded. But not in their prime of 23 years old. You haven't even hit your technically physical prime yet. Absolutely incredible. What a crazy trade deadline in the MLB. Second half of the season officially underway now with these trade deadline being passed. We'll get to that home stretch soon of September baseball. Very exciting to see what happens with this Juan Soto deal, especially in the San Diego Padres, how they're going to compete with the Los Angeles Dodgers in their own division, especially come playoff time. All right. Final thought then on this episode of the Final Final Podcast. Another kind of somber note here. As absolute two legends passed away, Bill Russell, former Boston Celtic player, player coach as well, and just an absolute NBA ambassador. He passed away, I believe, was that Sunday or Monday at the age of 88. And then Vin Scully, legendary play-by-play broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers also did a lot of play-by-play TV broadcasting as well nationally. I mean, possibly considered the greatest play-by-play broadcaster of all time. He passed away just, it was either this morning, August 3rd, or last night, August 2nd. Very sad. Starting with Bill Russell, I mean, more than just the ultimate champion and winning his player on the court with 11 NBA championships in 13 seasons. I mean, Mike... Mike Wilbon of ESPN, obviously very connected with a lot of these guys, said that this was the most important person to put on an NBA jersey. Just what he had to go through at that time of being a player in the NBA, being an African-American player in the NBA. I mean, there was a point where I I was just reading about this, about Bill Russell. He was under surveillance by the FBI when he was a player because he was, quote, an arrogant Negro. Are you kidding me? And just the way that he, from from reading about Bill Russell and learning about just more than him off on the court, that's something that he had to deal with every day. His own fans, this is, I guess we'll put it in quotes, fans, not really fans, I guess, would vandalize his home when he's on a road trip because of the color of his skin and just the way that he was still able to carry himself, still set an example, be the ultimate winner 
I mean, he was the first African-American coach in the NBA, fought for the civil rights in his playing days, standing beside Muhammad Ali, marching with Martin Luther King, boycotting even certain games. I don't know if they're regular season, possibly regular season games. I know for a fact exhibition games as well. To bring these kind of conversations to the forefront, to stand for something like this, I mean, the amount of stuff that he stood for to get the NBA players where they are today, all the NBA players acknowledging that too, was, I mean, this is an absolute, was a living legend in Bill Russell that we were able to witness. I mean, very sad to see him pass. I mean, the absolute, I mean, reading about, I'm saying I mean a lot here because I'm just shocked at from reading about all this stuff that he had to endure day in and day out during his time of being a player in the NBA and then still just handling it the way that he was able to and being this successful and just shoving it in everybody's face. I mean, the FBI thing absolutely blew me away that he was under surveillance for being, quote, an arrogant Negro. It's incredible what he was able to endure, what he did endure, what he went through on his day-to-day life and still able to come out on top by far, no question was incredible uh, for Bill Russell, and it's very unfortunate to see a legend like that pass away. And same with with Vin Scully, obviously very different in terms of Bill Russell and Vin Scully, but I unfortunately did not have the pleasure of listening to Vin Scully broadcast. I was not a Dodger fan growing up, and obviously I wasn't probably alive when he was broadcasting some of his famous games. But I did not get to listen to him on the radio. I I hear sometimes some of the highlights, but... Some of the stuff you read about him is that this is an untouchable play-by-play broadcaster and that this is the greatest play-by-play broadcaster, which is something that I look up to for certain as a, as a person who's trying to get into the industry of play-by-play broadcasting. That's, uh, it's very cool to hear some of the things that uh, Vin Scully, just the way that he's able to tell the story of a baseball game just paint the picture for you when you don't even see the field in front of you. You're just listening to it over the radio. Some of these guys have a real talent for that. I'm hoping and I'm right now learning or in the process of getting to that point where I can paint that picture as well as, as some of these people. you got to continue to work on something like that. But the to perfect it, that's the ultimate goal right there. And Vin Scully was the best at doing that. And it's very sad to see him go. As well, I mean, you're not even a, you don't even have to be a Dodger fan, and you know who Vin Scully is. Very sad to see these two legends pass. All right, let's get to our final, final thought then on this episode of the Final Final Podcast. We got a little long on this one, but we had a lot to get to. Some somber notes in this episode for sure. So I appreciate you sticking with me till the end here but just some stuff that definitely had to be said and we had to start talking about for sure and unfortunate to see some legends pass away as well but on this final final thought here I said I would get to my top 12 fantasy quarterbacks in my last episode when we did wide receivers and running backs we've already done tight ends as well let's do the quarterbacks here in fantasy football let's start with number one we got Josh Allen at number one I've got Lamar Jackson as my second-ranked quarterback. I think he's going to come back. He had an injury-riddled season last year, still ran for, I think, close to 
five, 600 yards. It might have been even more than that. I'm not sure. But Lamar Jackson, when he has a full healthy season, he can throw for 3,500, or maybe even close to 4,000 passing yards, and then he's usually right around 1,000 rushing yards. That's an incredible value that you can have with a quarterback. Add in 30 pass, 25, 30 passing touchdowns. Add in a good five to eight rushing touchdowns as well. That's so much value at the quarterback position. It's unbelievable. That's why I have Lamar Jackson as my second-ranked quarterback. I have Justin Herbert as my third-ranked, Patrick Mahomes as fourth. These two are interchangeable. Justin Herbert is probably going to lead the league in passing yards this upcoming season, I think. He was second last year only to Tom Brady. He's got the weapons in Keenan Allen, Mike Williams. They get an upgrade in Gerald Everett at tight end. Still got Austin Eckler coming out of the backfield. You got Josh Palmer. I'm sure I'm missing a wide receiver as well in there. Justin Herbert is going to lead the league in passing yards this year, I think. Also, he still has a rushing element to his game as well, which is very valuable in terms of fantasy for these quarterbacks. So Patrick Mahomes, four. Joe Burrow, five. I think Joe Burrow is going to be top three in passing yards this year. But the thing that holds him back is he's not much of a rushing quarterback. Had those knee surgeries, won his rookie year and one in college as well. So he's not going to offer as much upside in terms of rushing. So I've got him at five. I got Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray, six and seven. I think Russell Wilson can have a big year with the likes of Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy. He's very excited to have a full healthy season again after missing a lot of last year. New team, new coach, a lot of excitement for Russell Wilson. I think he'll do very well in his first year. In Denver, Kyler Murray also offers a lot of rushing upside. Only thing with him, DeAndre Hopkins is going to miss the first six games. Marquise Brown, I think, just got arrested today for criminally speeding was the charge. So we'll see if that comes to anything. But he might not have as many weapons as these other guys ahead of him. Tom Brady then I have at eight. I think he'll – the reason Tom Tom Brady was, I think, third in fantasy points last year. The reason I think it'll drop significantly – One, he's losing a lot of targets in this offense. Rob Gronkowski, no longer security blanket, inside the red zone touchdown kind of guy. Also, Chris Godwin is not going to be ready for at least, I think, the first three to four weeks. So you lose something like that. I don't think you can trust Julio Jones to be healthy for a whole 17-game season. So it's going to be Mike Evans and Russell Gage for a lot of this season until Chris Godwin comes back. So I think Tom Brady had such a massive year last year that there's some regression to the Tom Brady mean, that makes sense. That brings his rating down for me. Then at nine, this is where I put Trey Lance. I'm not sold on the throwing aspect of his game right now. I need to see some of it in action, so I've got him down below Tom Brady, but I've got him above a guy like Aaron Rodgers because, again, the rushing ability of these young quarterbacks, these guys like Josh Allen, who's going to rush for 800 yards, probably throw in six touchdowns, also throw for 4,500 yards and 35 touchdowns. That's why Josh Allen is number one, where a guy like Trey Lance can throw for 2,500 yards and 20 touchdowns, but then he'll add in 800 yards and five rushing touchdowns compared to Aaron Rodgers' Rodgers' 4,000 yards, 35 touchdowns. That's more fantasy points because rushing gets you more fantasy points, obviously. I got Trey Lance at nine. Now the number one quarterback in San Francisco. Puts me at Aaron Rodgers at 10. He's been a top five quarterback, top three maybe. Top five quarterback in terms of fantasy the past two seasons, MVP seasons. I don't I just think that this team's 
philosophy is going to be changing a lot with Devontae Adams. Doesn't mean the team is going to be any worse by any means. I just think this is going to become a more run-centric team. Maybe a lot of dump-offs to Aaron Jones as well. He's not going to have a Devontae Adams that's going to go for 1,500 receiving yards and 12 touchdowns. He'll have an Alan Lazard, who I think could go for close to 1,000 yards receiving and maybe seven touchdowns, six touchdowns. And then you got Aaron Jones, maybe 600 yards receiving. You got a guy like Romeo Dubes, Christian Watson, Sammy Watkins. We'll see. But he's going to be spreading around a lot more. I don't think that's in, it's going to be Aaron Rodgers' 45-plus touchdowns, 4,500 yards passing this upcoming season. It's going to be a much more run-centric team. But with the talent of Aaron Rodgers, he's still a top-10 fantasy quarterback. Then at 11 and 12, these are two guys that I'm a little bit lower on, Jalen Hurts and Dak Prescott. But then Dak Prescott, I've got rolled in with Matthew Stafford, Derek Carr. You could have either one of those guys in your top 12 as well. Jalen Hurts, I'm just not sold on. The same thing with the passing. And then this is a a run-first team in Philadelphia. They're not going to be throwing it as much. A very run-first team. Not sure how much Jalen Hurts is going to be running the football. We'll see. Jalen Hurts is on the hot seat for the Eagles in terms of his starting quarterback job. I don't think he should be, but I'm just a little bit lower on Jalen Hurts. Dak Prescott, he's got weapons falling all over the place, unfortunately. James Washington, one of their run, or wide receivers, just fractured his foot or ankle, I believe. Got a guy like Michael Gallup who's out for the start of the season. It's just going to be CeeDee Lamb and Dalton Schultz. And also Dak Prescott is rushing less and less after he had that horrific ankle injury. I believe it was two years ago now. Ever since then, he's been rushing less and less. And then Stafford and Derek Carr, the reason these guys are down here, they also don't provide that rushing ability. But these guys are so talented with their arms. They have such loaded offenses that they still could have top five potential. But after these 14 guys, there's quite a drop-off in terms of fantasy quarterbacks. But these are my top 12 I also gave you a 13 and 14 because I just had to lump in Stafford and Carr with Dak Prescott. I just, at that point, you could pick any one of those three for me in terms of being your fantasy starting quarterback. But Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, Patrick Mahomes, I think those are pretty consensus top four. Maybe the order is different. Josh Allen just offers it all. We'll see if they try to limit some of his rushing ability this year because they don't want him taking so many hits as a franchise quarterback on a seven-year, 200-odd-yard, what is it? Oh my, actually, he's probably got a $300 million deal. But either way, we'll see if his rushing attempts get limited by new offensive coordinator this year. But those are my top 12 fantasy quarterbacks for the upcoming 2022 NFL season. All right, that is all I have for you on this episode of the Final Final podcast thanks for listening we are over an hour at this point so i'm going to wrap this up very quick make sure i mean next episode we'll talk about more in terms of the nfl we'll see if anything more comes out of the deshaun watson ruling and we're just getting closer to that nfl season nothing out of the nba yet nothing we need to worry about there but we'll get you any news and anything that i just want to talk about at the time in the next episode as well all right thanks for sticking with me make sure to stay safe out there and as always You are listening to The Final Final.